Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting the show on Monday, November the 22nd, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 83rd post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight's show is the second of a series on the magical host, the human brain and body. And our focus is on the pharmacology of drug abuse and a detailed overview of the ecology of the human brain. All this and more. Stay tuned and enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is Pedro Gatos, your host, or co-host, I should say, as the premier host for tonight's show is Patricia, Patricia Bucco. Welcome back, Patricia. Thank you so much for your guiding us through this series of shows. Thanks for having me back. Well, I want to just go ahead and before turning it over to you, just remind folks that this is a, a pre-recorded show. Today is Tuesday, November the 9th, 2021, and we will be rebroadcasting this show on Monday, November the 22nd, 2021. And with that being said, I wanted to turn it over to you. Thank you, Patricia. Great, thanks. So just a reminder, we, we started a mini-series of shows, and they're titled Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse, and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. And in these series of shows, we're trying to focus on understanding addiction and approaching addiction in a more empowering kind of way. And before we start our conversation, I wanted to briefly mention Pedro's credentials and why we are doing this mini-series of shows. So Pedro is a graduate of University of Texas at Austin and has been a certified alcohol and drug abuse counselor since 1985. Pedro also works as an educator using an honest and motivational approach. While working full-time for Travis County, he concurrently taught classes for 10 years as an adjunct faculty member at Austin Community College, teaching college-level semester-long classes on pharmacology, addiction theory, and personal growth. He was also a counselor and advisor with the Travis County Justice System for 24 years, in which he held a state-mandated alcohol and other drugs, AOD, curriculums, and advised Travis County judges as to what level of education, counseling, or treatment might be appropriate to meet clients' needs. And these clients are usually clients with a DWI. In addition, Pedro is an inventor of an alcohol and other drug assessment process 
an author of A Cannabis Intervention Curriculum, a founder of the Pedro Gatos Institute for Addiction, Health, and Social Theory, and, of course, a radio show host of Bringing Light into Darkness. So as I mentioned, this series is called Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse, and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. We talked about this last show, about the concept of the magical host, and I wanted to recap on how this concept of the magical host focuses more on empowerment rather than language of shame we often use around addiction and focusing on the honest approach that we take towards addiction using this concept. So, Pedro, can you briefly recap that for us? Yes. First, thank you for that introduction. I also wanted to indicate that Patricia uh, has done her homework in neuroscience. In fact, that was her major in college. And so uh, it's really exciting to me to have this conversation with you. Yeah, I think the magical host kind of came up with that concept because really most people, they tend to empower drugs with magic. You know, I take this drug and it Mm -hmm. magically does this, that, or the other. And actually, that's really not the case. It's the magical host, namely where that drug realizes its effects that has the real magical power, I would argue. And that is in the human brain and body. And the human brain is an incredibly magical ecology of sorts that we'll get into perhaps a little bit later tonight with our discussion. But the idea is that there's a real war on drugs. And that war on drugs is fought in our bodies every time we take a drug. It's almost like, you remember Star Trek, right? I like to use the analogy of a drug trek. In other words, when you take a drug, it takes a journey through your body. And the drug trek is the life path and ultimate disposal of the drug by the human body. So the real war on drugs is what the drug does to the body and what the body does to the drug. But before we go there, I just wanted to indicate that the magical nature of the way the body works and the brain works is that drugs can only inhibit, block, or facilitate a natural body process. They, they do not create any new human capability. Even when it comes to the hallucinating type drugs, they're hijacking a neurochemical type of process in the brain that then allows for these hallucinating and very outrageous neurochemical activities that people associate with these drugs. But getting back to this real war on drugs inside our human body, the body does not discriminate. So if let's say you're taking an, an aspirin because you're, mm-hmm. you're getting a headache from listening to me talk so much on these shows, okay? Well, the body recognizes the aspirin immediately as a foreign invader. It's not part of its biochemistry, right. and then immediately seeks to destroy it. So, in fact, what the body does, and in fact what we do as manufacturers of drugs, is we will buffer the pill, In other words, so it can get through your digestive tract without being completely destroyed, so it has a chance to get to your bloodstream, because only then can it be distributed to all of the places of your body, including the sites of action for the particular drug that we may be evaluating. So a drug, as we said last week, is nothing more or nothing less than a chemical, okay? And that Mm -hmm. chemistry goes through the body, and the brain is mainly a fat soluble environment, which means that drugs of abuse are generally fat-soluble. So the brain is lipid-soluble, which generally means that drugs of abuse are fat-soluble, okay? 
except for alcohol. Alcohol is a water-soluble drug, but it's, the molecule is so small that it can access the brain with little trouble. Bypassing the blood-brain barrier successfully. But the reason I mentioned fat-soluble is because when you have a drug that's fat-soluble and it gets to your brain, it has its effect, it cycles back out of your brain through your bloodstream, right? It goes into your liver. That's what your liver does. It's right. a chemical factory. It tries to break down these chemistries into ways that your body can get rid of it, right? Because if that fat-soluble drug gets to my kidney and I want to pee it out, in order to get it to my bladder as a waste product, which is what the kidney's function is, guess what? Before it gets into my bladder, my kidney tubules, those are fat-soluble, lipid-soluble tubules. It comes through the tubules and it recirculates back into the blood, back up to my brain. So the body can't get rid right. of it. So the liver actually metabolizes. When you say metabolizes, it's a chemical process that changes the chemistry of the drug in different steps into eventually a water-soluble molecule that can then be eliminated from the body. So if you test, for instance, if you test positive for cocaine, and you get in trouble and you're on probation, they're not finding cocaine. They are finding a metabolite that's unique to mm -hmm. cocaine, that it only comes yeah. from cocaine. And if you have that metabolite in your body, it means you did cocaine, okay? And that's just to kind of talk about this metabolizing deal. Lastly, when you think about this foreign invader concept, think about, have you ever known someone that's had a kidney transplant, for instance? If you get transplanted, you can only get transplanted with an organ that's almost identical to your own genotype or tissue matching, right? You right, can't just right. get anybody's kidney, right? And so it has to be a, almost an exact match. But when you put that kidney in your body, guess what? Your body, remember, it does not discriminate. It automatically mm -hmm. recognizes that kidney is not part of you, Pat. Therefore, okay. I am going to attack it with my immune system. That's what it does. And so right. if, if I am a kidney transplant patient, I must be on immune suppression medication for the rest of my life of that kidney. So it suppresses my immune system. Not too much because that's what like HIV is, is a disease. Right. It of, works like an autoimmune um, disorder almost. Right, right. But if you have a kidney, you don't want your immune system too low where you can get opportunistic diseases, but you want it low enough where your body will not reject that kidney. Okay. Right. So, so that's right. just to talk about this magical nature of the human body. It has this ability to regulate and to accommodate and try to create this internal environment, whether it's in your brain or whether it's any other part of your body in a way that allows you to continue to live as a, as a healthy human being. Right. And you were talking about how alcohol differs and how it's water-soluble and then how there are lipid-soluble drugs. I kind of wanted to go over just different classes of drugs. I know last show we were talking about how you were talking to a lot of your students, and often the first thing that comes to mind with addiction and drugs is it's mind-altering. Mm -hmm. But there are obviously different classes of drugs, and I was wondering if you could possibly go over that um, and these differences. Yeah, so when you look at words like pharmacology and these high-dollar words, they all sound so intimidating. And just if I could take a step back, when you break up the word, like we were talking last week, we talked about biology. There's a prefix and a suffix, right? Bi mm -hmm. Bio means life. Logi means a study of. Well, the logi in pharmacology 
is the study of pharma, and pharma is drugs. It's the study of the actual science of how the body breaks down and accommodates the presence of drugs, okay? So mm-hmm. so it's just kind of, you know, what it does and, and as such. And so the study of pharmacology generally breaks down the drugs of abuse that we're particularly interested in, in what I consider four main categories, okay? Mm-hmm. And so one category, and these categories are predicated on their effect on the brain. So look, nothing changes the way you feel unless it, the drugs gets to your brain. That's just the way it works, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and, and even in an emotional state, it's a storm of, of, of neurochemicals that create all these types of changes in feelings and stuff. So we have changes in feelings all the time with or without drugs. When we add drugs to the mix, these drugs won't have their effect on the brain unless they get to the brain, so they have to get to the bloodstream, right? Mm-hmm. And first of all, to get to Across the... the blood brain barrier. That's correct. And but before they can even get to the blood, it depends on how you ingest the drug. So when you talk about pharmacology, one thing is to think about the mode of administration of a drug, okay? Are you taking it orally? Are you inhaling it? You know, or are you insufflating it through the through the line? you know, you everyone's had a bloody nose mm-hmm. when they were a kid. How you have these capillaries in your nose that are that that, that when you take certain drugs can be absorbed through the capillaries in your, in your nose, into your bloodstream that way. So mm-hmm. the, the different types of drugs, not all of them are conducive to all of the different modes of administration. Like if you take morphine orally, your digestive tract destroys, I think, some 30 to percent of that morphine. So right. when you're in the hospital, they don't give you morphine orally. It's through an IV. It bypasses mm-hmm. the digestive tract and such. And so the fastest mode of administration to the brain, actually, it's very, very fast when you IV something, but it's actually a tick or two quicker, maybe eight seconds or less, when you smoke something or inhale something, okay? Mm-hmm. So even though it, it feels like you're not using needles and therefore that, the, actually the delivery system to inhale something, the brain is immediate. So for instance, a drug like cocaine, if you convert cocaine into what's called crack cocaine, then you have reduced the vaporization point of the chemical, then it can be combusted, and when you smoke it, since you can't smoke powder cocaine, in other words, the heat level has to be too high before it vaporizes, so they change it chemically into a form called crack, and the Mm -hmm. amounts of cocaine getting to your brain immediately are just overwhelming, and that's what creates so many problems for so many people. As we know, we've lost many people from a cocaine overdose when when it just incites a maybe a, a heart attack, you know, mm-hmm. basically. Right, right. Okay. It's called ventricular fibrillation, I believe is what the, the, the medical language is yeah. Um, yeah. of sorts. So anyhow, so that's different ways that different drugs get absorbed are the different routes. And particularly for people that abuse drugs, they will, you know, use a, a number of different methods and such. But returning to your original question, the way you categorize drugs of abuse are by the effect it has on your central nervous system. And you've heard this term, central nervous system. It's simply just your brain and your uh, spinal cord, okay? And, And it's your nervous system. So some drugs of abuse depress the nervous system. Some stimulate the nervous system. Some create hallucinations. They're called hallucinogens. And some drugs of abuse in the broadest of categories are pain medications that often called opiates, opioids, okay? Those are your four main 
drugs of abuse categories. The central nervous system depressants include drugs that you're familiar with, like alcohol. And by the way, your body does not discriminate. It doesn't care if the drug is legal or illegal. It, right. it identifies all drugs as foreign invaders, as we said earlier and stuff. But alcohol is certainly um, probably the biggest group of depressants now is, are the benzodiazepines. They're synthetic drugs that were invented or created in the 1970s and include drugs mm-hmm. like, like Valium and, and uh, Xanax, Xanax, right? All of these different, right? All of these different. Some are fast Which acting. Which are also famously, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. famously used to treat anxiety and stuff like that. But they're often overprescribed. I mean, I know so many people that would get like a Xanax mm-hmm. prescription and end up selling it to people that wanted to use it as not a medication, but as for re- recreational use. So Absolutely. And that's a great point that you make, that first of all, these drugs are created not for drug abusers, but originally for some type of therapeutic use. And these are called anti-anxiety drugs, anxiolytics, L-O-I-T-I-C-S is the suffix meaning to, to, to break down, to break down anxiety, right? But also, let me just take a slight detour too, because this is important. Our drug pharmaceutical companies, we were talking about the addictive culture and the irresponsibility of some elements of our social fabric, right? Including the marketing and the over-marketing of drugs. There was a time when drugs could not be advertised, I think up until the 60s, prescription drugs could not be advertised, but through the brute strength of the, of the material wealth of these pharmaceutical mm-hmm. companies and its influence on our laws and on you know, how money has influences everything, that is no longer the case. And so where some people need anti-anxiety drugs or some people need antidepressant medications, absolutely, many people start with these drugs before they really have perhaps a real clinical need for them. In other words, when you live in a market economy, there's going to be people, there's certainly people that are taking these drugs that were probably better off not taking them. Because every time you take a chemical, it goes into your brain, it has some type of desired effect, right? And, and, right. It, and it has undesired effects. I mean, people smoke pot. They don't smoke pot so that their eyes turn red, and that their mouth dries out, you know, that's a, that's a side effect, right? And particularly with a lot of antidepressant drugs in these SSRIs like Prozac, when it first came out, according to Peter Bregan, Dr. Bregan did a lot of good work and showed that the FDA types of trials were not that very comprehensive. And what we saw was a certain subset of people having a very negative reaction to their dosing of, of some of these drugs over time. So Look, some people need drugs, and that's between your doctor and the patient, and you should just make sure that your doctor is addiction and brain health sensitive and, and, right. and have that trust and get second opinions. But what I, I guess what I'm just detouring here, too, is the fact that in an addictive culture, look, we as a, I think it's like 90% or more of all Vicodin, which is a pain medication from the mm-hmm. opiate grouping of drugs, is prescribed here in the United States. And, and mm-hmm. oxycodone, as we know, has been has killed so many, and not just oxycodone. When people can't get that, they'll get Vicodin. Or when people can't get right. their heroin, they'll get oxycodone and that, that type of thing. Or when people can't get their oxycodone, they'll get their heroin. You know, So, I mean, this is what helps right. create addiction rates that are higher than they should be in a country if it had a more responsible drug policy. But getting back 
to the CNS depressants. And we said alcohol, we said benzos. Uh, you know, an old school one is barbiturates. They were called reds back in the day. Right. In fact, barbiturates, any of these drugs, when you mix them with alcohol, by the way, have a synergistic effect that can be life-threatening and stuff. So a lot of, mm-hmm. in the 1970s, our number one overdose was barbiturates and alcohol, actually. Right. Or even, you know, suicide methods. Like, that is like a classic combination, drinking mm-hmm. alcohol and taking some kind of barbiturate. Absolutely. Um, it, and when you get messed up on drugs, your thinking gets messed up and your feeling states can get aggravated and... Exactly. Bad things can happen. Um, that that's that's absolutely true. So the second category, if we can jump to it just real quick, I think is important to mention are the stimulants, and people know mm-hmm. about that. And we should include the number one stimulant that kills more people than all drugs combined in our society is actually nicotine. Mm-hmm. And then secondly. Right is probably alcohol, but that's another story. But anyhow, nicotine is a stimulant. Certainly caffeine, which we all love, you know, I certainly do, is a stimulant. But then the ones that are more traditionally we associate with drug abuse, and appropriately so, are amphetamine and methamphetamine. And really the only difference between amphetamine and methamphetamine is this methyl group. M-E-T-H-Y-L. Again, getting back to all drugs or chemicals, you take the amphetamine molecule and you plug on a a methyl group onto that. Guess what you have? You have methamphetamine, a more addictive form of amphetamine. And then probably the other one, the most notorious, is cocaine. Cocaine is an incredibly rewarding dopaminergic drug. I mean, some drugs, when you look at addiction, one of the factors that create addiction is the profile of the drug itself. Some drugs are so reinforcing that they probably will create the addictive outcome faster than those that are not quite that rewarding. Adderall is another prescribed medication mm-hmm. for, for Ritalin. ADHD, Ritalin, right? And so then the opiates, if I can turn to those real quick, because I think it's important. If you have ever known anyone that got into a terrible burn situation where their body was burnt up and they were a part of it was or most of it was and they were in the intensive care at any local hospital they are grafting your skin they're scraping the skin and all this stuff it is the most horrifically painful thing imaginable right and Mm -hmm. thank god for what opiates okay they are they are getting iv morphine and and such and they're self-administering so that you don't get into the deep pain and usually and you certainly people generally don't take any more than they really need they learn how to do that but if you just go six weeks in the burn ward and then let somebody off after being on all that morphine they're going to go into withdrawal so they taper them off that morphine medication as they come off that pain morphine medication they but I'm just saying that the drugs themselves are neither good or bad. It's how they're used that creates right. the goodness or the badness. And so when you talk about opiates, it comes from the word opium. Opium is a plant, and its natural alkaloids include morphine and include codeine. And mm-hmm. there's a third natural alkaloid that's thebane. But from the morphine itself, now you have a chemical that if you change the chemistry of it, you have diacetylmorphinone, which is heroin, okay? And so that is a semi-synthetic narcotics, uh, heroin. And then you have the semi-synthetic pills that uh, many people are familiar with, the most powerful, which is oxycodone. 
and then Vicodin, which is hydrocodone, okay? And so these are given at, at different levels of pain. So for moderate pain, you might be prescribed a Vicodin after visiting the dentist or something like that or getting your arm set from getting it broken. And oxycodone is much more powerful. And we just talked last show how it was marketed, mismarketed, and created all sorts of problems of addiction right. and continues to this day, especially with the pandemic, uh, people turning more and more to alcohol and other drugs. Other mm-hmm. narcotics is what they're called, or opiates, you know, methadone, people probably have heard of that. That's a very powerful narcotic as well. Also, I just wanted to interrupt real yeah. quick because methadone, there are a lot of methadone clinics to treat former heroin users and stuff like that. But Right. What, what is interesting is kind of that dynamic of treating a drug addiction with another drug. Very good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's problematic, um, although there are clinical and science-based appropriate subset of people that do pretty well, you know, with methadone. And those are people that are hardcore heroin addicts, okay? They have been trying right. to give it up forever. Exactly. They just cannot do it for whatever reasons, but what happened, and this is to your point, I think, is that there was another subset of people that did not have as hardcore addiction. What what methadone does is it does create a very hardened addiction, okay? It's really, really hard, my understanding, to get off methadone. So you don't want to go there, but you do go there if it's appropriate, and it's a choice. And, And that's why addiction medicine, you know, you just got to have people that are really well versed in that and know when to, you know, because in the, in the old days, a lot of people, a significant number of people were put on methadone and then it would create a very hardened addiction. And just real quickly, for those that are not aware, what methadone does, the, the main thing about an opiate addiction is it is a hardcore withdrawal. It is like the mm-hmm. worst the worst flu symptoms times 10. Right. Um, and people often... Can lead to epilepsy, all sorts of conditions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it can, what it does is it completely, you know, you go through that type of thing, it just puts your body through the ringer. But, but people are so afraid of it that they oftentimes are just trying to cop drugs, not so much to get high, but to avoid withdrawal, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to take a quick pause for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. We will be back in just a flash. Don't touch that dial.